Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. Hello there and welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. Owen here with Murph. Hello there, Owen. And Ken, back in studio. Hi, Owen, how are you? I'm good, Ken. As we were talking to you, you were communing with nature, Dr. Doolittle-style at Acadia National Park in the US, surrounded by birds, including those enigmatic woodpeckers. Just why do they peck at that wood all day? Apparently to attract mates. Oh, is that it? Well, somebody... uh, Somebody tweeted me that. Jamie, I I think it was. I just assumed it was to pass the time. Just have something to do. Um, no, I don't know if animals do that. You know, I, I think that a lot of them just, you know, it's, it's either for mating purposes or for feeding purposes. Right, yeah. And if they're not doing that, they're probably sleeping. Uh, woodpeckers drum to attract a mate in the same way that other birds sing, deliberately seeking out resonant materials, <laughs> said Jamie D. So, um, so I guess that's what they're up to. How was the life-affirming hike? Oh, yeah, I did, did a lot of it. Walked, uh, I walked many miles under a blazing... Acadian Sun. Uh, I took a number of photographs of squirrels. Uh, thank you for sending them on, Ken. Uh, they have red squirrels there. I thought that they had. I thought they'd been exterminated by the grey squirrels and wiped out. Um, Much as they have been on this this isle, Ken. But uh, they're still they're still hanging on there. In fact, the place is infested with them. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was it, it was good. I, and I enjoyed it. I was in a tiny little plane. Um, with my, you know, pre- you know, when when the plane gets down to a certain size, like a really small size, like seven people, like the size of a minibus, um, they actually ask you your body weight. <laughs> uh, so they obviously weigh your bags, or then they ask they ask you for your body weight, and and if you don't, well, know, my fighting weight is <laughs> what's your curd weight, sir? Your curd weight. <laughs> it's a stone and a half above that fighting weight. If you don't know, you have to stand on the scale like a piece of baggage. <laughs> So they can get an accurate read, and then they were arrange. you uh, outsized baggage, were you? No, uh, you they, but I was the the fattest man on the plane <laughs> uh, because they arrange it according to mass, 
and it, it looks as though. Did they stick though, you down the back, like? No, you're over. You're kind of over the wing. Right. That okay. seems to be the 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 place where the heaviest. Ken on one side, goes. every other passenger on the other side of the plane. <laughs> He's in good form. Oh, there, yeah. well, welcome back, Ken. <laughs> but you have expressed your concerns in the past about ever flying on a helicopter. So I'm intrigued to know that you went on a plane that was small enough to essentially be a helicopter. Well, Were you was, a little nervous? Well, it is a different mechanism of action from a helicopter. I mean, if you can think about it, if a plane's engine fails, which God forbid isn't going to happen. I don't know why I brought this up. I'm actually getting a little nervous just <laughs> thinking well, okay. about this. Yeah. But if a plane's engine fails, it still does have an essential, um, an essentially flying structure. As long as it's pointing in the right direction, traveling above a certain speed, it can remain sort of airborne, or at least it can try to control its descent so that when it eventually does uh, intersect once again with the ground, which it will, mm. uh, it can maybe be at such a speed and such an angle that everybody can walk away with a great story to tell. <laughs> Whereas with a helicopter, you're less fortunate, or you, you're, you're frequently less fortunate in, in that situation. But uh, the, the, I mean, it was nice. The, the thing about it is um, it actually, they, they, they kind of spin side to side. Like if, if you can imagine a kind of a sideways circular motion of the plane. The plane is, is traveling forward. Imagine you're, you're flying towards 12 o'clock, but then imagine it's, it's kind of slightly rotating in the flat plane. Um, you know, the nose seems to now be pointing towards a little more towards one and now a little more towards 11. That's a strange thing to get your head around. Mm. Uh, but it, it seems as though it's quite normal for them to be sort of tossed around on the, on the wind a bit. You arrive back to be greeted with the news that your favourite sports person, Ken Conor McGregor, has retired. 100% retired, never to be seen again. There's no way he'll be back in the place of publicity in a couple of months' time. He is retired from mixed martial arts, 100% gone, finished career. What, what's his legacy? It's sad to he see called him. called it a career. It's sad to see him go so, uh, so early, the midpoint of... So many tantalising questions remain unanswered. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean... Uh, what's happening? He's had a spat with the uh, UFC, with Dana White. He has said, I'm not coming over to, do, to promote this event. Sure, I'll fight on it, but I'm training. I'm not going to bother promoting it. And Dana White says, well, then you're getting pulled from it. So he says, I'll get my news in. For, I'll get this news in first or get ahead in the news cycle and I'll tweet that I've retired. Well, it seems I, like it, isn't it? I don't know. I mean, what you are essentially following then the Dana White line of uh, that's, that's basically what Dana White has said, mm. uh, that he's been dropped from this upcoming fight in July because he uh, refuses to promote the fight in the way that all the fighters have to. But that's not necessarily what's actually happened. Um, I mean, I guess that my guess, and it is a guess, because I haven't spoken to Conor McGregor. And McGregor hasn't said much, uh, really. No. What's your guess? Is uh, really that he was looking for more money than they were prepared to give him. I mean, this has been going on for quite a long time now. This kind of uh, pattern of, of tension you know, with him demanding more and more and then, you know, obviously not really wanting to to uh, to go quite as far as he wants wants them to go. And, uh, you know, he has, he, he was speaking at, at a pretty early stage, like a couple of, you know, since a couple of years ago about the possibility of, you know, McGregor promotions, sort of promoting, co-promoting or uh, promoting his own fights, which they don't do. They don't allow that because um, that gives the fighter too much power, too much, uh, too big a cut 
of the proceeds. They just don't operate that way. But, you know, what he's been trying to do, I mean, he did an interview towards the end of last year where he was telling Ariel Hawani uh, that he, you know, nine figures, nine figures are going to be his next contract. You know, like I, I $100 million plus, which is obviously far in excess of uh, what anybody thought any fighter could realistically make. Um, you know, from the UFC or from, from the dealings with the UFC. Maybe, you know, if you became particularly famous and signed a, a bunch of uh, commercial deals or in movies and all this kind of thing, maybe you could earn that kind of money. But in terms of, are the UFC going to end up giving you that kind of money? Most people would have thought unlikely. Um, but, you know, he obviously thought, maybe maybe this can be done. Um, so I guess that that's the primary uh, source of the tension. You know, where's, you know, how's he going to do it? And I, <laughs> I mean, I think it's an it's an interesting situation. I mean, we've we've spoken about it again before on like, but the um, the way in which the UFC they do massively underpay their fighters. You know, the fi- the fighters are I think underpaid by a factor of five. When you look at the fact that they uh, pay out less than ten percent of their revenues to the fighters, that figure should be fifty percent. Um, I mean, if you compare it to other. Uh, you know, to, to to other sort of sports leagues in the United States. So I would say they're underpaying the fighters by a factor of five. Um, McGregor and Ronda Rousey and a couple of other big stars are the kind of um, names who might be able to pressure them to change that totally unjust setup. And McGregor has tried to get them, has has put applied loads of pressure to get them to change that setup and to uh, give over more of the revenue to fighters. But he's only got one particular fighter in mind, i.e. himself. So it's a kind of uh, Spartacus-type situation where he's trying to overthrow the existing order and change everything, except it's only him who stands to benefit. Yeah, it's got to be more dramatic also, though. This idea of putting pressure on them or looking for some sort of a co-promotion, I don't know if that's really going to work. What he has to do is break away entirely. And I know that's not necessarily easy to set up a rival organization, but it seems to me to be the only step, the only way for Conor McGregor really to have control of his own affairs is to have some sort of stake or at least be the face behind a new operation, possibly with Ronda Rousey, possibly with others. Now, presumably, the UFC would fight that tooth and nail. Oh, yeah. But it happens in other walks of life that, you know, competitors come along. They would, they would fight it tooth and nail. There are, there are competing organizations. I mean, the, 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 the thing that you need to know is what is his current contractual situation? You know, does he is he contracted to fight once more, twice more? Mm. Does it is that an existing uh, agreement? Because if it if it is, then that would be binding. It's not something he can just say, "Oh, well, you know, this doesn't suit me. I'm going to go have my own fight." Well, no, you can't. You know, you've agreed to do this, and then if he didn't, he could be sued. You know, or they could certainly drag out a legal proceeding for might prevent him from fighting for quite a long time. You know, which he doesn't really have uh, at this stage. Um, yeah. Uh, we will still see Conor McGregor in a ring, in an octagon in the future, Ken, is the bottom line. Um, I would be pretty confident that that will happen. I mean, in terms of, he, he put out this tweet, uh, I'm going to retire. I mean, it, it might have been a mistake. You know, it might, might have, it might be something that he now regrets. It's not, it's not like you can take it back. Maybe he's been reading The Art of the Deal, you know. Um, Donald Trump's The Art of the Deal. Underpinning any successful negotiation is the threat. Uh, is You've got to be able to tell them, I can walk away. I don't need this deal. 
I can walk away at any time. This is what Trump's saying he he could do uh, with regards to all, say, the United States' existing treaties, you know, regarding nuclear proliferation or, or you know, NATO or any of those sorts of things, or NAFTA. He could just say, well, we're walking away. Um, it works anyway in New York uh, real estate. And maybe it works, maybe it will be shown to work in uh, mixed martial arts. US Murph on the show today to talk Kobe Bryant, one of the all-time greats of the NBA, who played his final ever game this day last week and scored 60 points while he was at it. And Andy Murray, Kieran has, I'm going to say it, he's slowly become one of my favourite sports people in the world. I like his moxie on the court. I like his competitive spirit. Yeah, he loses a lot on, uh, a lot, like, a lot. But I mean, other, I mean, in Grand Slam Finals. But I mean, to to get to Grand Slam, to lose to Novak Djokovic, you have to beat a lot of other tennis players. So I also there is that, I suppose. I also like the fact that he says interesting stuff all the time now. Asked about yeah. doping in tennis, yeah, I have my suspicions. When you watch someone playing six-hour matches over and over, and they're not getting tired, you'd have to have a look at that. Talking about the context, talking the context of match fixing, yeah, I think it's a little strange that tournaments are allowed to be sponsored by bookmakers when they tell us that players shouldn't be sponsored by these sort of companies. Asked about the criticism of Moresmo as his coach and whether he'd consider himself a feminist. He says, I'm pro-everyone being equal, and if that's being a feminist, then you could say so, yes. Uh, you don't hear, I don't think you're ever going to hear, um, I don't know, Rafael Nadal describe himself as a feminist, but I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I wouldn't have predicted this when he first burst on the scene. He seems to become one of the great outspoken figures about the ills of the sport. You heard Novak Djokovic on this this week. He was mm-hmm. um, pretty much giving the nothing to see here line on the doping issue in sport. He was in Berlin collecting a Sportsman of the Year award at these Laureate Sports Awards that are on every year. His coach, Boris Becker, was also in attendance and was a lot more forthright. We have random drug testing, and unless it's proven, they are 100% innocent. Becker told Sportsmail. So throw in a curveball and assume someone because they've won a Grand Slam or is fitter, I think it's totally out of order. Andy is one of the fittest players on the tour. He often outlasts other players and nobody's questioning his ethics. I think it's a very dangerous subject. I can only repeat, the tennis is clean. I believe 100% Andy is clean, said Becker. Roger is clean. Rafa is clean. Stan Wawrinka is clean. All these guys are clean, says Boris Becker, seemingly au fait with all the uh, dietary and supplementary habits of all the world's top tennis players can yeah. categorically say that not one of them is doing anything wrong. Yeah, <laughs> I love his confidence. It's bizarre, yeah. I mean, uh, Andy Murray kind of ha- can't shake this boring Andy Murray tag, I think, in the eyes of the general public. And I think it's just because he speaks in quite a dire fashion. Maybe. But actually what he says and what he said on a variety of the topics that all sports people love to avoid like the plague oh, yeah. saying anything inter- interesting about, he's been interesting on. And, uh, yeah, this idea that Novak Djokovic is... Uh, no failed drugs test equals a clean sport. I mean, quite apart from the fact that the the best-paid uh, female tennis player failed a drugs test, you know, <laughs> three months yeah. ago. Uh, other than that, Novak, I suppose you could say that. Yeah, it's a slightly strange tack for Novak Djokovic to take in terms of how he's answering these questions, but we'll get into this a little bit more now with Nick Harris of SportingIntelligence.com. Nick, I think Murray has emerged as, I've always kind of liked him actually, he's a sports person, but he seems to have emerged as a bit of a champion of fair play as others within tennis have maybe stuck their head in the sand a bit. Yeah, I mean, um, most notably, he's been quite outspoken um, since Maria Sharapova has uh, it's been announced that she tested positive for the banned substance, meldonium. In press conferences, very shortly after sort of that whole thing was announced, he talked about um, 
quite stridently about the need for greater transparency and for more drug testing in tennis. It's something that he's been sort of consistently spoken about. And in an interview with Man on Sunday last weekend, he talked to um, Chief Sports Writer Oliver Holt and again reiterated that, you know, a ban, an exemplary ban needs to needs to be in place for Sharapova and that what she did was wrong, knowing using a substance that she'd been informed had been banned. Um, and, you know, he's also made comments about without naming anyone about suspicions about players who sort of never seem to tire. Um, I know that Murray has also taken an interest in sort of the subjects of doping in, in a wider, more widely in sport, particularly in cycling, and and he's sort of a keen follower of, of issues like this, and he's not afraid to speak out about it. Um, I mean, on wider issues of sort of fairness in sport and and, and um, other other related issues, gender equality in sport. He's obviously spoken extensively about that. He practiced what he preaches in terms of his hiring of Amelie Moresmo. Um, he is a proponent for fairer prize money. So in a lot of in a lot of ways, he has proved himself exemplary as a role model for equality and, and wider fairness in sport. When you say that he's taken an active interest in the subject of doping in sport, you mentioned cycling there. Was he? Did he eat up the Lance Armstrong stuff? Does he? Is is that what you're talking about? That he did, has he got a sort of a, a fascination with it? If you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's definitely an area he follows closely. I mean, we know, for for example, um, the Sunday Times sports writer David Walsh went to interview Murray about tennis um, sometime after the Armstrong, Armstrong case and David Walsh as a matter of public record sort of said that once the interview had finished Murray sort of stayed behind much longer afterwards than, than was required to, to grill him about how he became the man who sort of chased down Armstrong and stayed with that case and was you know fascinated from a personal point of view I mean that's one small example but you know Murray through Twitter and through interviews has shown that he's obviously fascinated by this this whole area uh needs you know acknowledges that there's a need for greater transparency from sports people about it and and sort of actively campaigned for more testing in sports so yes i mean you know i know he's got an interest in this stuff and he makes that interest clear when you talk about transparency among sports people could we single out tennis in particular as a sport that isn't necessarily a fan of too much transparency yeah, I mean, I think tennis has been woefully inadequate. Um, probably the, uh, not, not that many sports can really um, carry a badge of honour for the way that they've dealt with doping over decades, but certainly tennis has been woefully inadequate for far too long, particularly given that it's it's one of the genuinely sort of global sports. And there aren't really a lot of genuinely global sports. We all like to think that the sports that we follow are particularly popular, but something like, you know, cricket and rugby are are not genuinely global sports by any stretch of the imagination. Football clearly is the global game. Basketball is arguably next. And then after that, you've got track and field and athletics and probably tennis and golf are sports that are genuinely widely followed and participated in people from all around the world. And of those, tennis has to you, you know, you couldn't conclude anything other than tennis being woefully inadequate for many, many decades. I mean, I remember back to, you know, the, the when Peter Corder had tested positive for drugs during Wimbledon and, and the announcement was made, if not on Christmas Eve that year, then as close to it as it, as it was practically possible to be made. I mean, I remember sitting in the office getting the notification at, uh, you know, 
five past five on a Friday before Christmas that, you know, he'd failed a drugs test at Wimbledon in June or July that year. Talk about burying bad news. Um, Andre Agassi's autobiography famously had Agassi revealing that he'd been, you know, taking um, uh, drugs. Um, yeah, it's crystal, crystal I, meth, yeah. yeah crystal, crystal meth, and that he'd effectively said to the authorities, oh, it's a mistake, you know, I don't know how I tested positive, and they let him off, and it was brushed under the carpet. In terms of blood athletes, blood biological passports, they've been very late to the party. In terms of the amount of tests they do, it's getting slightly better now in terms of actually revealing who gets tested and when, but they've been behind the, the game for a, a long time. Um there are obvious questions, as there are in a lot of sports, about um, about the transformation in the performances of particular key individuals. Clearly, we can't name names here, but everyone will know who we're talking about. Um, and 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 also in other other individuals, the the um, infamous Puerto, Operación Puerto case in Spain. We know that um, um, many many dozens of cyclists went to. Um, Fumio Fuentes for treatment. We also um, understand that there are tennis players and football players and all sorts of other people in there, um, including Spanish tennis players and others. So there is a whole lot of stuff that we don't know about doping in tennis and other sports, but we are talking about tennis, and tennis is a notorious example that, frankly, we we will probably find out one day, hopefully, and that really the authorities could do a lot more to let us know about now. The, uh, obviously Novak Djokovic responded to Murray he says as long as we don't have proof that the game isn't clean then it is clean I've read what he said I have a great relationship with Andy I've spoken to him and he didn't mean specific individuals Boris Becker Djokovic's coach and people will have read him coming out and being a lot more uh, a lot less diplomatic than the particularly diplomatic Novak Djokovic accused Murray of being out of order and uh, had a bit of a go at Andy Murray there is there a danger uh, that when guys speak like this that um, you know, we we've all, we saw it with cycling where the, when the key people involved started talking ridiculously about the fact that everybody's clean here, there's not a problem. Uh, I mean, of course there's a problem. We've already seen it with Sharapova and those other, uh, those other tennis players you talk about, that these blanket statements like there's no problem, everyone's clean unless, uh, you know, unless I don't know what, that immediately you, the assumptions that sports fans now are going to have are that something uh, definitely is going on behind the scenes. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the statement that tennis is clean while people aren't getting being caught is complete nonsense. I mean, it's nonsense verging, going beyond ignorance into something, you know, um, jaw-droppingly stupid. I mean, uh, you know, Djokovic would only need to have a, the, the very, the most basic... Uh, knowledge of the facts of of drugs in sport and the fact that uh, you know something less than two percent of drug tests are positive, while even the most conservative, authoritative surveys done by WADA show a prevalence of drug taking of between twenty and forty percent amongst professional athletes, depending on your sport, to show that um, something under one in ten of uh, performance enhancing abusing drug taking athletes are caught by drug taking you know and and that's pretty conservative so the idea that um if people are not being caught that nobody's taking drugs is is a nonsense and it's ludicrous and ridiculous and risible for for somebody of Novak Djokovic's status to be making such claims the, the same way that 
you know, you had an entire generation of cyclists virtually, certainly a very high percentage, if not 90%, then 70, 60, high, high percentage of, of cyclists in the so-called EPO era from the mid-90s for, for sort of basically much of the 15 years after that to, you know, were taking performance-enhancing drugs of, of one or more kind. And, um, and, and a very, very few percentage of those were ever being caught and punished for doing so. Again, it, it's just pure nonsense to suggest that if people are not being caught, there's not a problem. I mean, there's clearly a problem in, in all sports, in all countries, with performance-enhancing drugs to different degrees. I'm sure there is um, a, a problem with performance-enhancing drugs in, in football, um, you know, and, and that will be the case in particular environments, particular countries, some more than others for various reasons. But there will be a problem with performance-enhancing drugs in all sports in all countries. For Djokovic to make a statement like that is just ridiculous, frankly. Are you surprised, Nick, that he wasn't a little bit more savvy, hasn't been a, bit, a little bit more savvy on this one and realised that actually, you know, we're all, as people who watch sport a lot, we're all quite uh, au fait with, <laughs> with doping. It's one of the m- most talked about elements of sport and everybody knows that there's doping in tennis just as there's doping in in other leading sports. It would maybe make, even from a PR point of view, it would make more sense for Djokovic uh, and maybe take some of the heat off just to say, yeah, look, you know, there's obviously a bit going on, but the authorities are on top of you. Know, some sort of bland enough stuff rather than these blanket statements that it's just not happening. Yeah, I mean, to be, to be fair to Djokovic, if, if he'd said anything that uh, allowed an interpretation that tennis has got a drug problem, i.e. if he'd actually said, we know there are drugs in tennis, or anything along those lines, the immediate follow-up for all of us would be, well, how do you know? Why do you know? Djokovic says there are drugs in tennis. you know, And, and it suddenly becomes, his words will be, you know, misinterpreted or, or willfully sort of spun by us by that I mean us the media in a way that he doesn't intend so so to be fair to him you can see why he perhaps wouldn't have said something you know an open acknowledgement that there is a drug problem in tennis because he would then be asked about it and asked to justify how he could say that Um, however there is a middle ground which he obviously didn't you know didn't take he didn't tread the middle path whereby he could say you know something much more much more diplomatic around the fact that you know nobody wants performance enhancing drugs in the sport that you know clearly from time to time people do test positive and that people need to be on their guard i mean there there is definitely a middle ground that he could have taken that was not what he said what he said is just is just nonsense and you know you do have to sort of question you know what he meant by that i mean Again, when when cycling did its CIRC, the independent sort of investigation into the DEPO era, basically to try and work out, it wasn't a truth and reconciliation process, but it was sort of akin to it. Um, A, one thing that stood out from that was how few active cyclists took part and actually came forward to sort of tell the truth about what had happened. But B, those who did speak to the compilers of that report um, you know, have very different, different, different definitions of what cheating was. I mean, the idea one person's cheating is very, very different from another person's cheating. So there were people who spoke to that report who gave, who basically told the investigators that, you know, cheating is 
something that can be defined by whether you're caught or not. And in some athletes' mindsets, they may genuinely believe that if they don't get caught, they're not cheating. There will be athletes who believe that, you know, if they take performance-enhancing drugs but not on during, you know, the competitive, only in the off-season, then they're not cheating. There'll be people who believe that if they take, you know, have... Uh, TUE therapeutic usage exemption certificates for performance enhancing medicines um, which basically give them a performance edge but as long as they've got a doctor who's told them that you know signed off a piece of paper saying that it's for medical purposes then they're not cheating so again there's, there's a huge complexity to this issue whereby you've got somebody like Djokovic you know we, we, we simply cannot know without grilling him on it what his personal definition of cheating is you know does he actually, what, what is Novak Djokovic's definition of cheating where drugs are concerned? The answer is we don't know. And until we know, we can't fully interpret what he's saying. But um, it is a very complex subject, obviously. Yeah, just to get back to uh, Murray, just to round this out a little bit, Nick. I mean, you mentioned a lot of the stuff that he's talked about, the uh, the kind of stands that he's made. Like, and I, I don't even know if he if, if he's going out of his way to make stands. He's just being he seems to be being fairly honest when he's asked questions. And when he talked about the match fixing scandal, he mentioned bookmakers sponsoring major tournaments. He says, "I think it's a little bit hypocritical, really. I don't believe the players are allowed to be sponsored by betting companies, but then the tournaments are. I don't really understand how it works. I think it's a bit strange. Do you think?" Andy Murray could start becoming a bit of a problem for the authorities in tennis that somebody might ha- have a word with them and ask him to toe the party line a bit more? Well, I hope not, because actually it's quite refreshing. You've got a professional athlete who's making tens of millions of pounds out of his sport who is actually willing to stand up and speak ethically about issues that he clearly believes in, and I think that is admirable and laudable and should be encouraged. I mean, Andy Murray, you know, in the in the referendum... Uh, Scottish independent referendum debate sort of entered it at the 11th hour with a, you know, with a what is now an infamous tweet about effectively supporting the independent side of that debate. And then, you know, that became, I guess, something of an embarrassment for him because he then backtracked when uh, afterwards saying that he perhaps shouldn't have made that intervention. But actually, I think that was a really good example of a guy who was willing to actually stand up for his principles and make it just, you know, it's not even that dramatic really is it for a Scotsman to say he's in favour of Scottish independence and I think that was one example of him you know being willing to just say something actually for the rest of us isn't that earth shattering but for a high profile sportsman is I think on issues like doping um, gambling fairness and sports gender equality all these when he does these things they make him a a more laudable and a more admirable sportsman and, and long may that continue and I wish there were more I mean, one one final thing on on doping and his stance is, is, you know, Dick Pound, the former president of WADA, has told me a number of times that, you know, he no longer watches Grand Slam tennis. He doesn't watch the Tour de France because he simply cannot believe what he is seeing. You know, he's told me this quite recently, and this is still his view. He still believes that the top levels of those sports to be riddled with drugs, and I'm afraid I believe uh, I agree with him. Personally, having sort of dealt with Murray from time to time, having seen him on the circuit, having spoken to him in press conferences and, and seeing the way he operates, uh, I he would be one of the very few top athletes in any sport, particularly in individual sport, where I personally would wager a large amount of money that he is clean. And I wouldn't do that on virtually anyone else in his sport. All right, Nick Harris, SportingIntelligence.com. Thanks so much. Nick
Dammit. The Murph and Mackey for most welcome Irishman of the year goes to Owen McDevitt. Owen, 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 Owen McDevitt. From Ireland's second captain show. All up in the interweb. Owen McDevitt. Second captain. Those guys, are like, those guys are like family to me, man. Owen McDevitt. This is Locke. The coolest song I ever heard in my whole life. Owen McDevitt. All of you said I wouldn't make it. Stop talking about Tom Finney. He said I was a loser. This guy is a bit of a turkey. All <laughs> right. He said I was a soccer look at me now all up in the interweb oh, in the if you say for example the barcelona team you worked at is it fair to say anybody could have managed those guys no of course not yeah oh mcdevitt here all up in the interweb here Great stuff from Nick Harris there from SportIntelligence.com on Andy Murray and in particular on Djokovic. I hadn't really thought about that angle that Djokovic says his sport is 100% clean, but what does he mean by that? How does Novak Djokovic define mm. a sport being clean or an athlete being clean? Is that different to how the lay person and the, you know, the sports fan might consider uh, is that Sharapova taking a uh, uh, substance not banned on the water list? Yeah, like what does he think about Sharapova? Is that you, clean? What the, exactly. I'd like to hear him talk in detail about what he thinks about the Sharapova because, you know, a lot of people have talked about that being maybe a grey area, but I don't know if Djokovic is going to go down that road anytime soon. And this PR ploy that he's um, that he's engaged with now, he sort of has to stick to it, I guess. I mean, as, as Nick said there, he could go down a middle ground and say enough that he doesn't insult people's intelligence as he is doing at the moment. Uh, they're my words uh, as opposed to Nick's. But say not so much that he's inviting a load of follow-up questions which he might not want to answer. There's there's ways of uh, admitting that... Boring us into submission. Yeah, right? well, I mean, you know, now, don't get me wrong. I just wanted to spill the beans full stop and talk about everything he knows, anything he's ever seen, anything he might have been offered, anything that he, he, he suspects. I mean, this is what we would, would all love to see. Go down the Andy Murray route a little bit more. Uh, I'd like to see Murray actually go all the way down that route. And, uh, I don't actually know that he could say any more that he yeah, already has. Quite a lot, I think. <laughs> really don't think he could give us any more, any more uh, uh, hints. The Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast is out today. That's yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. What are you doing down here, you shiny man? Well, Owen, we had Dion Fanning in studio to talk a little bit about the Merseyside Derby and choppy waters for Roberto Martinez. Extremely choppy waters for Roberto Martinez. And we also talked to Terry Daly in Rome about an insane five-minute cameo by. Francesco Totti, who obviously now wants him to sign him up, sign him up uh, for another extended term. Well, this is interesting, yeah, because the background to it is that there's been this ongoing issue between him and the club, in particular Spalletti, the manager. Well, look, Francesco, it's just that you're nearly 40. You're literally almost 40 now. You made your debut for us before Manchester United started winning leagues under Alex Ferguson, Mm. 1992. Uh, So, yeah. That's how long ago Francesco Totti started playing for the senior team at Roma. So it's kind (laughs) of, it's kind of like... How much longer do you realistically think this can keep going? But he's kind of turning around to three goals in his last two appearances, both off the bench. Look at any, the fans, look at my teammates. Spalletti. Yeah, so uh, it's an interesting situation. US Murph. 
Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game, no matter who wins or loses. I am deeply sorry for my irresponsible and selfish behavior. You're being extremely truculent. Whatever truculent means, if that's good, I'm there. Strike three called, and the Giants have won the World Series in Detroit. Brian Murphy, we uh, we just about managed to enjoy our new New York adventure without you, Brian. How are you? Well, boys, um, glad to hear you made it back to your home country, safe and sound. Glad Donald Trump didn't like bar you guys from <laughs> you know leaving or entering or whatever the hell he wants to do. Uh, somehow, some way, you guys escaped uh, and enjoyed Trump's city of New York. I know. I I confess to a slight bit of American major city envy. Because, you know, we had you out to our fabulous city of San Francisco, and I was very proud to show you guys around, blah, blah, blah. We showed you this. We showed you that. But, man, it's pretty tough to compete with New York. <laughs> I, I have to say, like, as much as I think my fair city it measures up with just about anybody, when New York comes into the room, it's kind of the big brother to everybody. So I kind of have to bow down a little bit. I will never bow down totally, but I do respect and love, and it is such a great and exciting and fabulous place, one of my favorite places in the entire world, if not my favorite city in the entire world. So I'm jealous a little bit, but delighted that it looked like a smash week of shows and rooftops and man oh man you guys partied huh yeah you would have enjoyed the rooftop bar at the brass monkey Brian. i think that might have been your kind of setting <laughs> well it's not going to beat the basement at foley's oh no you know, of course not no, no, no. come on now that was <laughs> a, how about that we that was the original don't forget all these people in new york who came to your live show they were just biting the style of the san francisco crowd <laughs> that sold that joint out instantly of course sold out is in air quotes because the tickets were free but uh, the lottery system tickets that we filled Foley's, I think, set the template that New York had to answer. And who knows what cities in the future, your Bostons, your Chicago's, your sure future road trips for second captains. So my only regret was I couldn't join you guys, but I did feel a little. I walked around all last week with a slightly warmer vibe in my body, knowing that the boys were in the States, <laughs> you know, knowing that you guys were in the States just kind of made me. Have a little hop in my stride. Well, either that or the Warriors winning 73 games and, uh, you know, embarking on their title run. One of those two things oh, gave me the warm vibe. We'll get on to the Warriors, Brian, but what about Kobe Bryant? I, I presume he's a big second captain's, Irish Times second captain's podcast fan, so maybe he felt our vibes as well. Whatever he felt, he finished off the season, finished off his career with his final ever game, and he shot 60 points while he was at it. I mean, you're probably asking the wrong guy, but since you're asking me, I'll give you my take on this whole deal. Go on. Man. That, to me, was like, that night pissed me off. That <laughs> night angered me because that was the night the Warriors won their 73rd game to break the Chicago Bulls' unbreakable record of 72 wins in a season. We are talking about one of the greatest performances in the history of U.S. team sports. Truly, truly, truly remarkable on so many different levels. And it was completely overshadowed by the slobbering and and sycophantic reporting by the major news outlets, and yes, I'm talking about you, ESPN, of Kobe Bryant, <laughs> who was finishing up, uh, by the way, a 17-win season on the Lakers, okay, who took 
50 shots that night. He took 50 shots in the history of basketball in the last 30 years. Nobody had ever taken 50 shots in a game until Kobe Bryant. Yes, Wilt Chamberlain took more in the early 60s, but that's because he was two feet from the basket and he could just lay it in. But Kobe Bryant, with his his no-conscious, selfish gunning, Look at me, Kobe. Oh, I'm self-deprecating now. Everybody love me. Yes, I'm on an anti-Kobe rant right now. Of course, I recognize <laughs> he's a great player, etc. But, man, that angered me because the Warriors completely got backseated for the Kobe slobbering, which really was just a night of gunning from uh, one of the great gunners of all time. So there you go, Owen. There's my... There's my Kobe love for you. Ah, Brian, the Warriors have had enough love this year, surely from the American media. Kobe's an all-time legend, 20 years in the league, one of the best players for so long. Enough love everywhere we turn. We're being told how bad the Warriors are, (laughs) how they can't measure up to the Bulls, how Scottie Pippen said they'd sweep them, how there's more talk about how Steph needs to be knocked on his butt, and that's the only reason they're winning. The Warriors continue to get disrespected. So that was another reason why I'm totally hot and hyped up about this uh, Kobe thing is because they still, to this day, are viewed as a team that's uh, sort of, quote-unquote, Charles Barkley, the latest to come out and say the Warriors will not win the NBA title this year. So I would beg to differ with the adulation of love. Yes, a few odes have been written, but for the most part, this 73-win season was fueled by the disrespect that they've gotten from the get-go. James Harden, I should have been MVP. Kyrie Irving, it was uh, they would have won. The only reason they won is because I was out. Doc Rivers, you got to get lucky like the Warriors did. On and on and on. So, no, I don't need Kobe gunning his way into the headlines and then acting like Mr. Nice Guy when he's really, you know, not. And, and to be honest, yes, great defender, yes, great shooter. But Kobe's never really, I mean, listen... Here I'm. I'm gonna. I've been painting myself in the corner of a Kobe hater. I'm not a Kobe hater per se, but you know, guys who announce this is their last year in the league to get their love instead of being the guy who just kind of quietly exits. You know, I I saw it as a lot of look at me, look at me, narcissism. And yes, again, this is all based on the fact that the Warriors got backseat treatment from the uh, the night they won their 73rd game. So where would I put Kobe Bryant on my all-time list? Of players I've watched in the NBA, well, my consciousness began probably around 1976 or 77. So I didn't get to see Oscar Robertson play. I didn't get to see Wilt Chamberlain play. But I saw Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I saw Magic Johnson. I saw Larry Bird. I saw Michael Jordan. I saw Shaquille O'Neal. I saw Kobe Bryant. I would say Kobe Bryant's one of the top 10 greatest players I've ever seen, and I'll leave it at that. 20 years he was in the league, but do you think that the, I think I have that right, but the, does longevity count for or against him when you're talking about the legacy of this player? I know how much you American sports guys love the word legacy, Brian. I mean, just the, the last three years in particular, I think he's been sidelined with injury most of the time. He hasn't won anything in, in quite a while. He's watched LeBron, first of all, take over from him as the best player, and now Steph Curry. Like He's there so long that... This once in a lifetime player has taken over, or once in a generation player in LeBron has taken over from him, and now the next guy has sort of taken over from LeBron. Do you think that might count against him, or would people say, "Ah, you know, he he, he stuck around, he he showed heart, he tried to stick in there and finish out his career"? Well, there's two ways to look at it. The one way is sort of the the main sort of lean would be to admire him for coming in at age 18 and playing till age 37, 1996 to 2016. I mean, the roundness of the 20 years, the the epicness of the of the totality of his numbers, 
all that stuff generally when you talk legacy even if you're not the same like I, i'm looking back like two years ago he only played six games because the injuries last year he only played 35 games because of the injuries so yes of course there's always that teetering tottering part at the end and the name that's always brought up kind of unfairly is willie mays you know considered to be the, the greatest baseball player outside of babe ruth who ever played the game that Willie Mays' last year as a New York Met is a sad sight, and it's always brought up as almost like shorthand when you get to the end of a Kobe Bryant career. You say, is this Willie Mays in 1973? He's sort of used as the gold standard of a falling-down old guy. So, I mean, there is that feeling of seeing these guys in a diminished state, but to Kobe's credit, he did play 66 games in his final year. He did have some games. I will note, as I'm looking at his stats, he did shoot 35% from the field this year, okay? He was a career 44% shooter. He was 10 points below his average. So, uh, But there was a sort of the Lakers season was so bad, and it was just written off as a Kobe legacy year that they almost people almost forgave him his 35% shooting and his relentless and remorseless gunning because it was sort of a, hey, your team stinks anyway. That's the one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is that his retirement year stunted the Lakers' growth for a year. Like this whole, like, let's let Kobe shoot as much as he wants. They have young players, D'Angelo Russell and this crew. They're trying to build Andrew Wiggins. They're trying to build, pardon me, not Andrew Wiggins. He plays for Minnesota. But uh, trying to build this young core with the Lakers. And they had to basically step aside for a year and let Kobe do his thing. So that's the negative. The other negative, too, is that three years ago, Kobe signed a massive contract for his final three years, massive, that handicapped their salary cap. People wondered why Mitch Kupchak, the GM of the Lakers, did that. And, you know, the answer is, well, he's, you know, one of the greatest players in Laker history. He won five NBA championships like Mike, like Magic Johnson did. He should get that kind of thing. But the cynical or the the cold business answer would have been don't sign Kobe to a contract like that, in which he made $30 million last year, 23 this year, 27 the year before that. So we're talking about a guy who whose salary demands were so – actually, $25 million this year, 23 the year before that. His salary demands were so outrageous, they restricted the Lakers from becoming a better team. So some people will call him a franchise killer by the end. So it depends on your view on which side of the street you look at it. You could you could take the negative slant, or you could say, "Wow, twenty unbelievable years and one year of an of a sort of a a, a a final lap of love and adulation." I can't believe he took fifty shots, Brian, to, get to score those sixty <laughs> points. I mean, were his teammates happy for him to keep shooting? Were well, the were the yeah, Utah that, Jazz were the Utah Jazz guys just standing there applauding as he kept taking shots? Well. See, there you go. There's actually some people talking about, look at Utah in that game. Now, Utah had been eliminated earlier that night before they even took the court. The Houston Rockets clinched the eighth playoff spot, which meant that Utah was out of the playoffs, which meant Utah suddenly had a meaningless game on their hands. And there were some conspiracy theorists who said Utah laid down at the end because they actually blew a lead late, and, and Kobe actually kind of led the Lakers to victory. But there are those who believe that, you know, it's all staged entertainment. It's all wrestling on some level, pro wrestling, so that Utah maybe stepped aside and let him do these things. That's, that's the cynical take. And the other thing is that Kobe's teammates – because it was his last night, said, yes, go ahead and shoot. They told him to go shoot. It still, even with that, had a relentless and remorseless selfishness to it. Like I said, basketballreference.com is the website I go to for a lot of my stats. And they had, I looked it up because I was curious that very night. I was like, has anybody ever taken 49 shots? And 
and you look at it, and since they only go back to 1983-84 on that website, right. and Michael Jordan once took 49 shots in a game, so Kobe's 50 actually eclipsed that. <laughs> it's a staggering number. It's an unbelievable number, and you know the, anybody who's ever played basketball knows that there's there's nothing worse than the teammate who takes all the shots and never passes it. Circling back to my Warriors, right? Why we love the Warriors so much is they are such a beautiful team. You guys talk about Brazil football, the beautiful game when it's at its best, right? The way they play. That's the way the Warriors play basketball. Their ball movement and their passing and their willingness. If they have a good shot to find a teammate who has a great shot is such an artistic way to play the game. And I think that's why I was so miffed that particular night. Plus, I'm an emotional guy guys and you know i might have had my own things going on yeah no, yeah no, it's good to hear but I mean, we're, we're sports fans but we're all human beings as well you know so sometimes you get hot and heavy uh, hot and hyped up as you described yourself there but listen don't worry about scotty pippen brian don't worry about charles barkley james harden any of these guys your boy your splash brother over here in ireland oh my david is probably just referred to myself in the third person is firmly back on the warriors bandwagon i know i had a moment i had a wobble but i'm back back well, let's say, let's examine the wobble. When did the wobble go down, Owen? Oh, it was after they lost to whoever that team was. Minnesota, was it? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Well, they should have lost to Minnesota. Minnesota. Yeah, they lost <laughs> Minnesota. to Minnesota, and that was it. You wobbled, huh? You really lost the faith. Yeah, but I didn't jump off. I just, I clung on. <laughs> and now I'm back. All they needed to do was beat the Spurs a couple of times. You're welcome back because, listen, <laughs> to be honest, uh, listen, whatever happened to you after the Minnesota loss and all that, I go back. I will never forget the image of you walking in the studios at Canbiar 680 in San Francisco, which maybe isn't as majestic a city as New York, <laughs> but is more beautiful. There's no question about that. We have better Mother Nature, Planet Earth, geography, confluence of longitude and latitude. It is a more beautiful city than New York. But I will never forget you walking into our studio with the gas station T-shirt from the Splash Brothers, the scarf. You were on it before they even made that playoff run, my friend. Yep. So I never considered you off the bandwagon. You've always been on. Well, tell me, just lastly, and uh, we don't labor the point about them uh, becoming the greatest regular season team in NBA history with the 73 wins, including the, another game away at the Spurs was the first time the Spurs lost all season at home, as far as I know. So unbelievable way to do it. And then they finished it off after that. But obviously they have to go on now and win the title. One of the pieces I read while I was in the US, I think it might have been in Sports Illustrated, Brian, can't remember exactly, but it, it made the point that towards the end of the season, Steve Kerr, the coach, had said, look, you know, we can't obsess too much about this record. We need to rest a few guys and really come hard at the playoffs because that's what counts. And apparently Draymond Green and Steph Curry took him aside and said, listen, coach, we'd actually, we actually disagree somewhat with your analysis there. And we think we need to all be starting these big games and, and go for that record. A lot of them did play in the last few games of the season. And now Steph Curry's ankle is acting up a, a little bit. First of all, is that Steve Kerr's story true that he, he listened to what the players had to say? And maybe did Curry play a little too much towards the end of the season? Yeah, no, the, the, the story is true, 100%. That, uh, and it's, it's viewed now as another masterstroke of Steve Kerr's ability to have a functional team. As a guy who used to play and as a guy who remarkably was on the 72-win 95-96 Bulls team, that's one of the most remarkable aspects of this entire thing was that Steve Kerr was a key player on the 95-96 Bulls who won 72 and then became the coach who wound up winning the, you know, guiding the 73. So that makes him one of the more pivotal figures in NBA uh, sort of history. And um, what a, what a, what a uh, mm. legacy he's left as a sharp, a sharp shooting three point shooter and now a coach. And in the relationship he has with his players has been so good. And he did 
uh, have those conversations with them. He's always been very transparent with the media, which is great. He handles the media quite deftly in that he treats it with respect, humor, substance and information, and mostly honestly. Um, and, and so he's kind of earned everybody's admiration that way. As far as Steph's ankle, which is, yes, the huge story here this week, what's going on with his ankle? We don't really know how serious it is. He sat out game two. He may sit out game three. We don't know, but they're playing a really woeful Houston Rockets team, so they can almost afford to play without Steph and give him all the rest he wants because it's almost like not even like a playoff series because the Rockets are so unappealing as a team. But nobody thinks that what happened to Steph's ankle is related to him playing down the stretch because it happened on a, a very flukish thing. He just took a shot and he landed on it and kind of turned it. So it was an it was a one time incident. It wasn't a wear and tear like a stress fracture or a or a, or a tendon strain or something like that. It was sort of a pop on a, on a landing, and and it's kind of thing that's haunted. It's been in the backdrop of Steph Curry's career. He had severe ankle problems his first three years in the league to the point where the major discussion was, hey, this kid's a nice player, but his ankles will never hold up. We should probably move forward without him and look to trade him. But then he had this legendary surgery on his ankles from a doctor in North Carolina three years ago, and he has been perfect ever since. So the the thought that this has come back now after three years has people a little uneasy, like, uh, is this a one-off or is this a return? Nobody yet, though, has connected it to him playing the entire season because he would have played the entire season anyway. And the other fact of the matter is that he didn't play that many minutes. One of the things about the most remarkable thing about the Warriors run this year was that they had teams, most teams blown out by the fourth quarter. And Steph Curry, if you look at the top 10 players in the league, I think, I'm almost positive, I don't have the stats right in front of me, he played the least minutes of any of the top 10 scorers in the league. So he was not overworked by that stretch. It just looked to be a very freakish thing with his ankle. And and you hope, and it's kind of the mystery moving forward, that it's it's a short-term thing, not a long-term thing. Okay, well, they're two up against the Rockets, and game three is tonight, Thursday night. So we'll leave it there with a hot and hyped up U.S. Murph. Thanks, Brian. <laughs> 73 wins greater than Kobe's 50 shots. I'll leave you with that little math equation for today. And great to hear you boys back in Ireland and delighted you had a great time in New York. I, I know you did, and uh, and welcome back to welcome back home, boys. Chief, you don't got this home at Motherville. You know what I mean? Your bags in your desk, boom. Your bags in your desk, boom. I mean it, I'm fucking raging, speaking from my heart. Who would I want in? I've got big teddy boots here in. Mr. Tate, how you doing? Not too good after tonight. You got the job on the technicality of a legend who recommended you. Take no beep, I take no beep, I take no, I take no, I take no beep. Just so soft, don't try to get so deep. You know me, but I can't yell me, I can't yell me, I can't yell me. You have lost the fans tonight. You don't deserve the fans. What's it, your fans? Just need to fucking work on it. You are nothing. You are a fool, and you are a waste of time. Good night. Oh, the Guinness Book of Records stuff. Get a grip. He's your biggest fool in Manchester. I didn't expect Brian to be quite so unhappy at the Kobe Bryant coverage. I thought he's gonna. We could get into a good chat about legacy yeah. and all that kind of. And he's just like, no, no, he's. He should. Why is he? He threw 60, 50. How many shots was it? 50 shots. 50, 50 shots points, for 60 50 points. Shots. It was a joke, and he shouldn't be getting any coverage. Mm. I think, uh, you know, uh, we are also to blame here because we had, we, we had two topics we wanted to discuss with him, and we said, we'll start with Kobe because it's probably more interesting than, than the Warriors, which is exactly the mistake that Brian 
was hating on the entire U.S. media. Well, it's for just doing we've talked, you know, we've talked to a lot of Warriors, and they did yeah. go unbeaten. But I'm sure they'll be talked about again before the end. Of the See, season. This is Kobe's one shot at getting a bit of Irish time, second captain's airtime. That is true. That is true. But I did read, uh, I think it was on ESPN.com, kind of, you know, uh, what a recap, you know, from the last night of regular season action in the NBA, and it was like all Kobe, and then elsewhere the Warriors broke a 20 year record, and you're like. In fairness, maybe maybe our uh, our priorities are a little screwed here. I've got the Scotty Pippen quotes that w- were touched on by Brian. There, he was on the Dan Patrick Show and he was asked for a prediction: the, the current Warriors team against his Chicago Bulls team. Bulls in four, he says, which means a clean sweep. I don't think we take a night off, says Scotty Pippen. He also predicted that he would be guarding Steph Curry. He'd take up that job. I think my size and length would bother Curry a little bit and reckons he'd limit him to under 20 points. So I love these old-timers, these former players. They certainly never shy away from backing mm. themselves That's certainly these mythical a, arguments. That's certainly a theory we can never prove or disprove. We were feeding the burn last weekend, watching a lot of support gathering in New York for Bernie Sanders. Not quite enough, though. He got fairly stuffed by Hillary, uh, Hillary Clinton there. It's almost yeah. as though there was more to New York City than the chi-chi areas of Manhattan <laughs> that we were... Uh, walking oh, I was around. walking around the West Village last week and it yeah. looked... Uh, <laughs> Big, loads of Bernie Sanders uh, signs and, and whatnot in the meatpacking district, but it uh, turns out uh, that's not that's really representative of the state where Hillary Clinton uh, retained commanding lead. You travelled on from there, from Arcadia even. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about your final protocol in the US before we wrap up there? Um, well, I, was, I don't know if we've got enough time. Why well, no, just give us a, bit, a 60 second run now. Uh, well, I went to... I went to uh, Boston. Yeah. I went to Cambridge. I toured around Harvard University. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I toured around the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Wow, really rubbing shoulders with the brainiacs there in the East Coast of America. Those, wait, wait a second, you, you went to three separate universities? That's a lot of university tours. Three? Well, there were two. Uh, was it MIT and... Oh, and Harvard. Harvard. We, honors maths, was it, or...? Oh, no, a pass. I definitely wouldn't have got into MIT. Um, so Cambridge, Harvard is in Cambridge. Oh, Cambridge is, yeah, Cambridge is a town. Yeah, Cambridge is, a, is the name of the the city. Okay. Yeah, it's on one side of the of the river and Boston's on the other side. You went more blue collar then, though, didn't you? Um, yeah, you know, I, I did. I suppose you'll have to tune into our other podcast too. Oh, we've got more information than that I see. Ken sometimes <laughs> saves a bit of uh, bit of info for well, I don't know, I don't know just throw away all my best material in the very last that's minute. That's all right, that's true. <laughs> and at this stage, I mean, people have listened a lot. They're about to wrap up now anyway, so we'll say goodbye and thanks for listening. Goodbye, thanks for listening. Thanks, Kieran. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, so Kieran. Thanks, Owen. Follow us on Twitter at Second Captains. More of Ken's American Adventures <laughs> in the football podcast today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.